Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Startup Savant Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan, and this is a show about the stories, challenges, and triumphs of fast-scaling startups and the founders who run them. We've got something a little bit different lined up today. Our guest is Chris Matthews. Chris is a marketing consultant who works with early-stage and stealth-mode startups. Chris has been working in and around startup marketing for more than 20 years, and he's put all of his experience in a new book, and that book is called Start Telling People. Some of the ideas in this book seem to have really struck a chord in the industry, and he's been invited to speak at VC firms, startup events, and was even offered a three-day guest lecture series at UC Berkeley's Skydeck Incubator. We've got a lot to talk about today, and I'm excited Chris was able to make time to chat with me. Remember to like and subscribe if you want to support the team, and let's get right into it. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm super stoked you're here. Let's start with your background. Can you give us kind of how you how you came up in the startups uh, industry and with marketing and how you came from the beginning of your career to here? Sure. The fast track on that is after grad school, I went to Specialized Bicycles and I led international marketing there for about 10 years. That's a bigger company, but it, I was there from a time when they were, when they almost went bankrupt. I joined shortly after that and was there during a phase of massive growth. So when they went from about 200 million a year to about a billion uh, wow. over the course of that 10 years. And while it wasn't a startup exactly, I learned a lot of pretty essential startup techniques and fundamentals that ended up helping me later uh, because the company was continually reinventing itself, like not just new model year every year, but lots of new innovation, lots of, uh, lots of engineering, prototyping, concepting of driving a whole industry forward. So after 10 years there, I got invited to join an early stage startup with a friend of mine in the health technology space back at when DNA was just getting started uh, on, at the consumer level. And that then led me to Pebble, where I was the brand director and into wearables. And then Pe Pebble got bought by Fitbit. And I went from Pebble to Mayfield Robotics, which is where I transitioned into more of the modern like robotics, AI, computer vision, machine learning topics. and helped that company come out of stealth and launch at CES. Uh, very successful, fun story, great team. And then following that, moved to Europe for a couple of years. My wife had an opportunity there that took us there. While I was there, I worked as an advisor to an incubator that was at the local university. So I got to work with student startups through Europe. And then two years later, we moved back to California and I ended up at another robotics startup, this time in the agriculture technology space with a lot of the same people from Mayfield who had migrated to there, putting robots and AI into greenhouses. That takes us to almost up to now. And then I took a little time off to take a moment to figure out what I'd learned. And what was originally gonna be a handful of blog posts quickly became a chapter summary of a book and six months later, I was holding said book in my hand. 
And here we are today. And here we are. So that's actually something that I want to talk about later is, is kind of the, the medium of, of sharing this, this information. But, mm-hmm. but that's for later. Let's, let's go back here. Um, so your consultancy is called Very Small Robots. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about Very Small Robots and, and kind of like what exactly that is and, and the, the services offered and that sort of thing. But in the description of Very Small Robots is a term stealth mode. You help stealth mode startups. And and that's something that you just mentioned now. Mm-hmm. So this is this is something that's been brought up and and talked about a little bit on this show in the past, but what is a stealth mode startup and why would a startup choose to operate in stealth mode? There's a range of reasons. Mostly it's because you have a handful of very talented people working on a very hard new idea. And they're trying to validate that idea before they go to market with it and make sure that it is viable, doesn't violate laws of physics, and that they can actually commercialize it. And in some cases, that involves proprietary IP and trade secrets that to get patents or to be protectable have to be at a certain level. You know, it can't just be a napkin sketch sometimes. So... These companies quite correctly choose to stay under the radar to avoid competitive threats, to avoid avoid larger companies jumping on that draft and quashing them early. And in some cases, it's really just to get that idea, a platform that they can launch from that has people understanding it when they first see it. Uh, a lot of these companies are building ideas that have never been done before. And it takes a fair bit to get your intended audience to understand this thing you've been working on for quite a while. That then introduces the next problem, which is, okay, if we've been a secret, how do we stop being a secret? Right. And that's where a lot of the work I've done over the past 10 years, particularly, uh, has, has really anchored around. So there's, a, there's kind of an opposing piece of advice out there um, that is tell everyone, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. if you've got an idea, share it with everybody and you'll kind of put those, I guess, vibes out there and you'll get the kind of feedback and responses from different people you talk to. And and generally the, the consensus around that advice is like, nobody's going to steal your idea. Just go do it. Just, you know, tell everyone and, and be out with it. And in fact, the name of your book is Start Telling People. But I think that that you may have just mentioned that, you know, it's like after the stealth mode startup then you start telling people. So what's, is there, when, when trying to pick one of those two pieces of advice to follow, whether to be in stealth mode or whether to, you know, be, uh, you know, out with it, do certain businesses fit one of those models better? Or is it more a, uh, a difference in the founder or what, what makes you choose whether to be stealth in the beginning or whether to be loud in the beginning? The beginning is a, an interesting term. Um, because you started your startup the moment you had an idea for it. And it does come down to like, what's the benefit of other people knowing? And for some people that is massively helpful early because you need more consumer insights or customer insights or partner insights to operationalize your idea. Um, And in other cases, your idea is like maybe a little light on details and it, there's something you know that you're going to go investigate 
if telling people doesn't get you further, then there's really no point. Like, go work on your idea until you've got a good story to tell. And if telling people is the next easiest, best step to moving your business forward, then yeah, start telling people. But there are cases uh, like you know, Siri, for example. You know, if you go back in history, uh, that was developed in stealth because they knew that they were going to be up against giant players in the market and they needed a jumpstart out of the gate. When Siri got launched, it was launched as an app on, on the iPhone 3, I think. Is that right? Um, and two months later, like Apple bought it, closed the app down, and integrated it into the iPhone 4. And that, that sort of traction like at a big event became fundamental to their success versus showing little bits of their work alongside Microsoft doing the same thing or Google doing the same thing. And they all, when they launched, they were ready to go. So Apple could just grab that, block it in, and away you go. All right, let's get into let's get into the the main the main meat of uh, of what you're here and and kind of what this book has has put forward, and that's product demos. Um, so there's a chapter in the book that's completely dedicated to product demos, how to do them, why they're important, all that good stuff, and that's what we're going to talk about. Um, this it sounds like this topic, this product demo topic, is kind of the main focus of a lot of these talks that you've been giving. At, mm-hmm. uh, at these VC firms and that sort of thing. And we really haven't talked yeah. a whole lot about it on the show. Um, so I think that I think we've got a really, really good opportunity to to build a, a really detailed picture of product demos. But I want to make sure that we're all starting in the same place. So could you give us your definition of a product demo and tell us when and why a startup should start thinking about product demos? Absolutely. All right. A product demo is a compelling display of your product in action. So tidy little sentence with like three parts that do a lot of hard work there. It's got to be compelling. It's got to be your product and it's got to be in action. And that all of a sudden clears out some of the noise of like, it's not screenshots. It's not a spec list. It's not a demo, like uh, not, not a video. It's actually showing your product doing its thing. And after that, then you can get into like, what's the environment you're showing in and like to, how, how big is your audience, things like that. But compelling display of your product in action. This is something that I really learned at Mayfield Robotics because r- robot demos are among the most difficult to pull off. You've got hardware, software, environment, audience, You've got lots of different inputs and a huge array of things that can go wrong. Uh, but when you do it right, it it's magic. And, and one of the things I've learned working with engineers is that marketing and engineering are very good partners in these sorts of projects because engineering provides the structure, the framework, the product, and marketing provides this translation layer of like how do we tell people about this thing? What words do we use? What visuals do we use? What narrative can we weave around this product to make it come to life? And 
when someone asks you, what does it do? This is a great example of like being very specific about what they just asked you. They didn't ask you how it worked. They asked you what it does. And that's what does it do for them? Mm -hmm. And that's a perfect example of this translation layer that we can run that helps a product meet the audience that it's intended for on their terms. So at Mayfield, we launched our robot at CES in 2017. So just a little context, like a team of about 40 people total. And we had best in show awards and nominations from Wired and Gadget and PC Magazine and like nearly 2,000 news articles about us, all in the scope of about 48 hours. That's a big deal. It was massive. And it was because we could do live demos anywhere, anytime, on the show floor, whenever, at a time when a lot of robots were still pretty nascent, like 2017, not that long ago, but kind of forever ago in robotics <laughs> world. Right. And we had put in the work to make sure that we could do that. It was a huge amount of practice. It was a huge amount of prepping a range of engineers, our exec team, uh, anyone who might be involved in a demo to understand the whole show, right? And thinking of it like theater as opposed to simply showing your product. And that training led us to being able to do things that at the time other people couldn't do. So that methodology is what's outlined in chapter seven of exactly how did we do that? And how did we make things that bulletproof that we could do it in, under such hard conditions? All right. So before we get into the, the kind of how you did that and how other founders and marketing teams should kind of think about how they're going to build their product demos, let me ask you about the outcomes of, of your specific demo. You mentioned that, mm -hmm. you know, best in, best in show or other awards from multiple different, you know, big name outlets and thousands of articles uh, being written about the, the company. What did that add to when it came down to the actual business? Like you had all the articles written, mm -hmm. but what did that do for the company? It did exactly what we planned it to do, which was we were going after consumer robotics. And this launch represented the first time that we could take a pre-order from a customer. Okay. So not just launch the robot, but turn the website on, turn on the whole brand identity overnight, right? Didn't exist. And all of a sudden it exists. So launching the company and the product at the same time under in the chaos of CES and be able to start taking pre-orders. And we did, right? They just started rolling, rolling in right away because we had all of this coverage pointing to us mm -hmm. as not just novel and new, but really newsworthy. And that was a lot of engineering from the standpoint of our PR team and like the, the work that we did to line that up, you know, working with journalists months in advance, letting them come in and see the factory and like, see what we were working on so they could have bigger context. And really demos have, they have specific outcomes, right? You, you don't do a demo for fun. You do it mostly for one of four things. You're either trying to close a sale, you're trying to close a new hire, you're trying to close a round of investment, or you're trying to get media coverage. And in, in our case, 
the launch itself was about media coverage because that was going to lead to sales. We did our own internal sales, like we were going to B2C. That same demo was the same demo we would use for bringing on new hires mm -hmm. and why we were able to attract the talent we did, right? Like we had, we had some very notable names come through to see the robot in advance because they had heard through the VC community or through the local tech community that we were working on something pretty special. And that demo was relied upon for all of those situations. But each time you do a demo, we started with understanding what success looked like. So if it was to close a new hire, that contract was ready to sign, right? We, we were ready for it to work. Right. And in the case of CES, you had you probably had lots of, you know, hey, put your name in for the pre-order right here. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you recall totally. how many pre-orders you got? Over the course of the, the following year or so, uh, because there was a, a long arc to that. We it was in the thousands, awesome. and so that was good. Now that story didn't end the way we all wanted it to, um, but um, yeah, and we can go into that now if you want to. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's do that. A, um, sure. First, tell us what what's the what was the product, and then yeah, definitely yeah. give us what okay. should have happened um, and what didn't happen. So the 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 product was Curry, uh, the the world's first adorable home robot. Okay. And so this this robot was consumer based, going into homes in at a time when you know, robotics was still like the the pinnacle of robots was vacuum cleaners mm -hmm. for the home, right? And so this robot was designed to be cute and adorable and have a ton of personality and a lot of animations, a lot of sounds and motions that were very carefully engineered to create a response that was far beyond just tech specs, right? Like we would never be able to sell this robot based on how many megapixels the camera was. Mm -hmm. um, that's That was not the audience, that was not the point, that wasn't the story. And so that robot ended up, because of all of the choices that we made, end up hitting the marks on basically being magical to the people it, it was shown to, right? It looked, it was a robot that didn't have a screen, right? It, the eyes were mechanical, but using a lot of animation principles from you know, animation houses you've heard of, we were able to create motions and um, reactions that just made the robot feel more alive, feel like the robot had agency. Uh, the the favorite, favorite example was when the robot was turning left or right, the robot would look left or right first oh, before cool. turning, right? Not because the robot had to do that, but because it shows intent, mm -hmm. right? It shows, it shows, it's an animation principle of like, I'm going to go that way. And you, it builds trust. It builds an understanding of, uh, you know, not being, and not being surprised. So all that to say, the robot itself was, successful because it existed, right? Mm -hmm. It did exactly what we had said it was going to do. Uh, the company was owned by Bosch. So we were actually 100% owned by a multi, multi-billion dollar international conglomerate, um, which by the way is a nonprofit, but most people don't know that. No, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, like most of what they do goes into the Bosch Foundation. Um, like 
eighty billion dollars a year or something like that. It's hmm. it's it's it's, impre- it's really impressive. Um, they just don't make a big deal of that. But irrespective of that, we were started as their first California startup. They had done some in Europe, and they wanted to know what made a startup in California work. And so this was built out of a couple of Bosch employees in their Palo Alto facility spun this out as an idea. And when we were successful, there was a, a non-obvious path forward for Bosch. That is like, they didn't, they don't sell direct to consumer. They don't have a consumer goods division uh, in, in this kind of way. Mm-hmm. They don't have a lot of the support that you would need. And so right on the eve of shipping the robots that we had made, right, to all the pre-orders that we had taken, a difficult decision was made to instead not do this, shut the company down, and donate all the robots to education programs around around the world, basically. That's a pretty uh, big, uh, big switch. Mm-hmm. A very big switch. Uh, not a decision that was taken lightly, Certainly not one I was involved in personally, <laughs> um, but uh, but it was it just wasn't what we had all hoped for in terms of what we were building because like the technology in that robot was amazing, uh, still is amazing. Uh, what we had to do to make a robot work like that and cost as little as it did uh, at the time was nothing short of revolutionary, and uh, that that team was assembled for that purpose and. and was, st- remains one of the best teams I think I've ever seen anywhere. Uh, yeah. so, so I'm finding myself asking, you know, a- asking the question of like, what does the robot do? And I, f- and I think that, you know, maybe that's a normal question, but I think that that is interesting in the context of this conversation, because that's kind of the whole point of mm-hmm. a product demo is to, is just what you said, what does it do? And therefore, what does it do for me? And so we're going to start talking about how to build the the product demo for for this in just a moment. But if if folks out there want to um, want to check out the Curry Robot, I, I think there's some stuff on YouTube that oh, tons. Uh, that yeah, will there's a lot. We'll link to it in the show notes over at startupsavant.com slash podcast so mm-hmm. everybody can find it there. Um, but quickly before we jump into how to build a product demo, I want to ask you that the 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 context of of what we've been talking about is all hardware and in this case you know robots but a lot of companies out there aren't necessarily hardware they are mm-hmm. software or they are you know consumer uh, packaged goods or or whatever just before we start talking about how to build this how should those folks think about what you're saying and do they need to make any any kind of uh, adjustments to the to the process of building a a demo from the standpoint of hardware and particularly a live hardware demo that's sort of like the pinnacle of difficulty mm-hmm. right so like the the hardest thing in the world is a robot demo or a car demo or an airplane demo in front of a live audience and if you can figure out what your hardest moment is right then, and plan for that, everything else is easier. So if you have software, yeah, you have some things that you might not need to deal with, but you still have a lot of the same things, right? 
Um, the batteries in the robot, as an example, are one thing we had to deal with very carefully um, for demos. In software, okay, you don't have a battery. Well, you if you're showing it on a computer, you better make sure that computer's battery is charged. And so like some of the same fundamentals of prep still apply. And if you are showing something working on a screen that is still in action, right? It's still where your thing works, the environment in which it is living. And to be able to show the real thing instead of screenshots or napkin sketches is vastly more compelling depending on where you are in the development of your startup, right? If you are working on a concept and selling this to an investor, you need to show them where you're going to go and how you think you're going to get there and what steps you've been able to make in that, in that progress. For someone you're trying to close a sale to, they want to know what they can buy today. Mm -hmm. And if you talk about where you're going to be, they'll say, great, call me when you're ready. Um, and that's like not doing the demo at all. So there is some context here, but a lot of the fundamentals for software companies still remain the same. And hardware doesn't work without software. Like it can be literally on fire <laughs> and still be a, and still be a software problem. Right. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like, it, it sounds like, uh, we're every product, every, you know, one hardware company from a different hardware company compared to a software company compared to a, a CPG, you know, it sounds like they all need to control for different variables, but they all need to control for variables. So I think I exactly. think what we're I think what we're finding is that this process is going to be very similar for for any startup, any product that's being put out. So so let's jump right into it. Tell us how do you build a great product demo? Well, I'll start with why, if I can. Yep. Because Startups typically start off with questions of like, when do we start marketing and how do we start marketing? And the when is much less controlled because you've been marketing since the moment you tried to hire someone, since the moment you tried to get investment, like you're telling your story. The how is the part that is very hard to templatize for startups because depending on whether you're working on something that's super new and no one's ever heard of it, or you're working on something that's sort of like, a, a portmanteau of like, it's like Netflix, but for hula hoops kind of thing, or you're working on like, now we're, we're new and improved, right? Like we're, we're the thing, you know, but the best version of it in some dimension. Mm -hmm. And the how in that, in those options are all different, but the one common how is the demo. Like every one of those needs a demo. And the, the demo is like really fundamentally answering that question of what does it do? and engineering that answer in a way that meets the audience where they are, right? That you have to be compelling, um, you've got to be accurate, and you got to be valid, right? Like accurate, like accurate from the standpoint of like, your engineers need to look at this and say, yeah, that captures the product well, right? You're, or your CEO, or you know, if it's just you, then it's just you. The valid part is like you're is that you're talking to an audience that actually cares about this and you're showing this to someone that matters. And the good news is that demos is a this is giving demos is a learnable skill. What's inherent in that statement is that just making the product doesn't make you good at giving demos. You have to learn this. And 
it's the same reason that someone can be very good on camera or someone can be very good, say, giving a podcast, right? You've put a lot of work into being very good at podcasts. And that makes you much more equipped to speak into a camera, into a microphone, understanding where you're going. This is not an innate skill. You, you, you weren't born with that. And giving demos is very similar. So it is practice. And the practice part starts after you establish what's your checklist, right? How do you make sure that you've got everything ready before you give a demo? Mm -hmm. What's your script? And how have you built your script to understand the story arc that you're going to follow and what you're going to say and what you're going to show and be very, very explicit about those two things? And then after the demo, your post-flight checklist of what did we learn, right? What what went wrong that we could have prevented? And can we add that to the pre-flight checklist? And what questions did we get? And should we add that to the script? And what can we reset that will help us in the future when the next demo starts? And there's a fourth component to this that is maybe the most important and references the, the main thesis of the book I just wrote, which is that marketing is a discipline. It, it's not an activity. And there's, there's lots in the books we can you know, t- to get into that. But one of the things about demos is understanding how long does it take between someone asking for a demo and your ability to provide one. By starting with understanding how much time you need to prep, you avoid the situations where people say, oh, don't worry, it's just me, or I just need some B-roll, or like, it's just for a friend, because those are all invitations to run the demo faster than you said you needed the time to do it. And those are when your failure points start to show up, right? You can't run your pre-flight checklist clearly. You can't check everything that you need to check. You can't get everyone on board that you need on board. And it's better to not do the demo at that point because no demo is better than a failed demo Mm -hmm. and failed demos kill startups. So treating this with that kind of discipline, right? This is part of marketing, but it's part of marketing that is much less creative and much more tactical. You've put the creative work in and now you're applying it in a very rigid structure to make sure it goes the same way every time, right? You, that consistency is super important. All right, so let's let's maybe give just a little bit of like an outline. Um, so we've got, um, and I think I've got it here. We've got checklists being like um, pre-flight checklists and post-flight uh-huh. checklists. I know those are two very different things, and we'll address them separately. Um, you've got uh, obviously once you kind of figure out everything that you're going to do, you've got the the practicing of of the thing. But there's one thing that um, that is in the in the chapter that I read, um, and that's kind of like creating the script and thinking mm-hmm. about that like a storyboard. Um, yep. And I think once you once you kind of find out the the why of why you're doing this, what's the what are the goals we want to achieve with this with this demo, and the kind of what of the what are we going to show? I think that that storyboard is is really a good. Um, a good path to kind of like figure out your flow of how everything's going to happen. So can you tell us how to go about making these storyboards? Yep. Storyboards are really effective as a starting point for demo scripts because it treats 
the visuals and the words separately. It forces you to put them on two different paths. And it's like making a movie, right? It's like prepping for a movie. Even though this might not be a movie when you're done, it forces you into this, this understanding that we need to be able to not say something we can't show, right? You always want to be able to show what you say. Mm-hmm. And if you have storyboards and you have words that there's no visual to it, it it stops the record, right? It forces you to say, well, can we add a visual to that or do we take the words away? And secondarily, like a movie, it introduces spots where you can put in logical pieces like your company's history or your founding story or why you're different or... Um, who you've hired, like whatever's relevant to, to the demo, because in this case, the product is the hero, mm-hmm. but there's supporting actors here that are going to come in to make the product look even better. And by thinking of it in storyboards first, it can really help you in kind of like post-it notes, like moving them around, mm-hmm. right? Figure out what's the right flow to make this a really great story. This is also what marketing people tend to be very good at. And so engineers and marketers in a room together working on a storyboard really reveals a lot of like what's important and helps to put spotlights on how to highlight certain things. Yeah, and I think there's a an added benefit of that if you, you know, like just what you said if if you if you want to add in the the story of the the company's history or something like that, you can maybe put those in a time when there needs something needs to load or again you know mm-hmm. going back to like uh cpg if if something needs to like bake and we gotta yep. stick it in the the uh the oven for six minutes hey now you have six minutes to tell a story or to give a tour or anything like that so i really really like this idea of of storyboarding because it 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 gives you it really lays things out on a timeline here is what goes where um you can, depending on, you know, where you're doing this, you can, you can think spatially as well of like, this is where mm-hmm. we're going to be. I love that. I love the idea of the storyboard. Um, so let's assume there's, now there's, that there, there, there's another it. thing in there that's also really helpful is that it gives you insurance policies. And by that, I mean, let's say you've got three or four features of your product you're going to show. Your audience doesn't know what order you're going to show those in. Mm-hmm. In, in many cases, they won't care. Um, that's not that's not the point. And if you normally show them one, two, three, four, but you go to do the demo and you notice that something isn't working quite right, and you jump straight to feature four, and your engineer in the room happens to notice that because you've practiced, and they're immediately shelling into the robot like to figure out what's going on and fix it, so that you can go back to feature one a minute later. Mm-hmm. Your audience has never seen any of the problem. Right. Right. This reveals the goal of the demo, right? What is the goal of a demo? The goal of a demo is to make your audience believe they saw a perfect demo. That doesn't mean you trick them. There's no trickery involved here, but it is giving you the flexibility of moving around, you know, water finding the, the smoothest path, right? Mm-hmm. So that if and when you run into stumbles, you've got options that you can pull on and you've practiced this so many times that it looks just natural. 
yeah, it's a dance. And you've got you've got totally. those kind of internal if then statements like maybe, mm-hmm. you know, maybe marketing and and uh, engineering get together and, and marketing says, right. hey, if I notice this or if I notice something, basically, like if I start to tell this story, that means I'm going to do this thing next. And if yep. it doesn't go with the flow that we, you know, that we agreed upon, that means something is up. So it's it's mm-hmm. it's communication without speaking and it it seems like really if you practice it even if it goes wrong it could still go very right which is exactly absolutely the point of this let's get a checklists um Mm -hmm. so storyboards are great let's assume that we've that we've got our storyboard in place let's talk about uh first let's talk about that pre-flight checklist yep this is everything that you can check in advance of a demo so not just the basics, right? But all of the details. Is the guest parking spot open and reserved? Uh, have you checked HVAC? Have you checked lighting? Uh, is your product ready if if the person you're giving a demo to says, I want to shoot a video or shoot photos? Do you have supplemental lighting available to pull in and make the product look great or a backdrop to, to use? All of these things can be checked in advance. Um, in it as well, this is also your first time that you get to check what I call the three demons of demo, right? Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and battery. <laughs> Those three things generally account for most demo failures, one way or another. So not just testing them, but testing their backups and having backups. Uh, when, when we were doing robot demos at CES, we didn't rely on the show floor Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. We had Wi-Fi in a backpack. That was, you know, someone near the robot. You wouldn't you wouldn't know who they were, right? But we controlled the Wi-Fi very carefully to make sure that that robot had a good connection. And this is the you know it's also part of the pre-flight, but it's just a a fundamental. You control how much insurance you bring to your own show. It's on you. So that pre-flight checklist is literally everything you can check in advance all the way down to like what are people wearing you know who's got which role do they do people understand who the understudies for each role are um are do you have the right snacks right <laughs> right um, if you're showing to a journalist do you have the the background on the journalist to know what they've written recently and you know what their what their normal beat is all those things because when it's a list and when you check every single one of them off when you're doing the demo, those aren't things you worry about. Right. And that's super important. Right. So you don't have to think in the moment of, hey, right. this is a problem that we that that we didn't we didn't cho- we chose not to think for mm-hmm. problems. So we ran into a yep. problem. Now we have to solve it while we're in in this talk. That's not what you want, obviously. Um, and I know I I keep bringing it back to like CPG brands and, and just mm-hmm. just kind of the level of thinking that needs to go in this. If you've got something that needs to bake for seven minutes, well, maybe you're going to Denver to give mm-hmm. this this uh, this new demo. And hey, the air's a little thinner and maybe it only needs to cook for, you know, right. four minutes or five or, you know, just everything like that. Um, so I yeah, the the pre-flight checklist I think is massively 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 important. Let's jump to the post-flight checklist. This one's a little bit different. Um tell us about that. So this is where you can check to see what if anything went wrong, regardless of whether your audience saw it or not. What could we have done to prevent that? 
And this is also when you can check like log files, like maybe something went wrong and you never even saw it. But this is your chance to do a, a post-game analysis of what happened and then decide, is there something else we need to add to the pre-flight checklist that would have prevented that? Because you know, we, we are human and mistakes happen, but if you make a mistake twice, that's a choice. So how do we prevent the same thing happening again. And the other dimension to this that's maybe even more important is what questions did we get from the audience? Because questions are like feedback, right? It's a gift. Do we want to add the answer to that question into the script somewhere? Is this an important question other people might care about? And that helps your script evolve in a way that matches the audience you're meeting. And the other piece here is if in post-flight you change anything, you have to figure out a way to communicate that change to everyone involved in the demo. Because like a change to script, a change to pre-flight, a change to post-flight, um, anything, everyone should know because it could have implications to QA, it could have implications to communications or, or to your website, like who knows? Um, so make sure everyone knows. All right. Do you have any, do you have any cool stories? Do you have any funny stories of either product demos going wrong and it was saved or, or, you know, something flying off mm -hmm. and hitting, hitting some CEO in the head or <laughs> do you have, do you have anything, do you have any, anything good for us? There, there are countless times in practice where things went wrong, which is why we practice, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's kind of the point. Um, there are definitely times when we had a, like a, say a small technical hiccup, like, uh, something needed to reboot for some reason. Mm -hmm. And in those moments, uh, one, of our, one of my favorites was to have an early prototype or two on hand, just as more of a display piece, right? But it was an ability to say, you know what? Let me take you back a second. Let me show you where this robot was just two years ago. And you go back to like an old prototype and you're like talking about what you learned at that stage of that prototype. Meanwhile, your engineers are like furiously fixing whatever that thing was, or it's simply just rebooting itself. Mm -hmm. But you had this little option, this little like little alleyway to explore that you could or not, it didn't really impact the demo, but it bought you time. Um, the, the other story, and like this one's, it's a little tougher because it wasn't us exactly, but there, there was one situation where our robot was on stage with another robot and our CEO's up there with their CEO and they're doing a panel discussion and our robot's hitting all the marks, doing everything right, right? Um, their robot was not. <laughs> and the contrast between the situation that their CEO was in and that our CEO was in was so obvious to so many people. And it's like, you, you felt bad for him, but it was like that, again, it's just that practice, that discipline of you've got to be prepared for the hardest situation you're going to face and train like that, like much like your altitude example. If, if you're going to be in a situation that's different than where you pract normally practice, find a way to simulate that. Because mm -hmm. uh, like your Wi-Fi at home is not the same as your Wi-Fi at a hotel in like downtown Des Moines. And so you better know what the complications are you're going to run into. 
And sometimes that means doing a, a trip in advance to go test it all. And that's all you get to do. But you got to do it. You know, when you said there was two robots on stage, I really thought you were going to give me the uh, the battle bots uh, story that they no. just started uh, duking it out. That would have been pretty cool. No, <laughs> not, not that robot. <laughs> so we've we've gone deep on chapter seven. Uh, we've we've given folks a, a really good taste of kind of the the depth of of where this book is going. Uh, what else? What else is in the book and what what should people expect to gain when they pick it up? The book is a, a book on collaboration between engineering and marketing and why that is such a powerful force when put together. So it begins with this understanding that when we're building stuff that's really new and really difficult, those are harder stories to tell. And that partnership of like getting it right and getting it compelling is a really important step in the growth of any company, especially early stage. So there's a chunk in here that focuses on when you're early, how is marketing different than like if you pick up a normal marketing textbook? What, what situations do you face that are unique because you've not started this yet or you're just about to start? And how do you think about fundamental concepts like positioning, which is super important, if you haven't explained to your audience where you fit in their world, they're not going to know. And it makes it very hard to go to market with that. So that's, you know, positioning is critical for any company, but the way you do positioning for a company that's never existed before is much different than how a CPG brand would approach positioning for like a new flavor of product. And then that leads to things like your brand's identity and how you build these like these early parts of what your company is and how you describe yourself. Um, there's, there's interesting tension points between things like you know, vision and mission for an early stage company and a big company. Because like these early startups, part of the value is that flexibility, that nimbleness, that uh, ability to, to shift and figure out exactly how to be. And vision and mission statements tend to be these like long looking like long-term statements. And so like that short-term flexibility and that long-term thinking are kind of in conflict, but they're still important. And you still have to find a way through to do that, even if it's something that you're going to change. The The important part is going through the exercise and, and getting to consensus on like what it is you are today and then revisiting it as you need to. And then Lastly, that, that sort of leads into your go-to-market strategy of like, okay, how do we tell other people? Demos are one functional part of that, but there's a lot more to explore. Um, the book also covers like things like how to build your first marketing team and how to think about that, how to, how to do budgeting when you're early, uh, how to think about marketing when things get a little tougher, um, and how to think about transition, right? How to, what you're building now in the first couple of years, isn't what you need in like five years. And so what's that pathway going to look like? All right. What is your number one piece of advice for early stage entrepreneurs? <sighs> the best one I've seen that is applicable in the most number of places is to assume benevolent intent. And this is that idea that you're working on the same problem. Engineers and marketers may speak different languages in some cases, but you're fundamentally working on the same problem. So 
when things get off axis, it's not usually because someone's trying to be, you know, a problem. It's that their intent doesn't quite match your expectation and, or rather their output doesn't quite match your expectation, but their intent, if you assume it's benevolent, you can start a conversation from a much better place. Um, that, that single thing has been very helpful to me in a lot of situations. Um, a second one that I'll I'll nudge in is that a, a, a fast experiment is better than a long discussion. So if you can test something really quickly, that is vastly better than many, many meetings about the topic. And in a situation, particularly startups, where data is either scarce or non-existent, don't assume just because you have no data that you can't get data, Right. You can go run a quick experiment in many, many ways to at least get a little shred of data that makes you slightly more confident in that decision. And the ability to run those experiments quickly can be quick multipliers on how, how you're able to get your whole team mobilized in the right direction. That's true for marketing. It's true for engineering. All right, Chris, there's been a lot of good stuff here. This has been a ton of fun. Um, I'm super glad you were able to find time in your schedule to uh, to come and chat with us. Uh, one last question. Where can people connect with you online and where can our listeners find the book? I'm relatively easy to find. You can find me at my, my personal site is verysmallrobots.com. The book site is starttellingpeople.com. Uh, I'm also pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. And the book is available on Amazon, uh, both in print and Kindle formats. And the audiobook, which I just finished recording, should be on Audible in the next couple of days. So by the time this, this goes live, it'll be on Audible too. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Chris Matthews, the book is Start Telling People. We're going to put links to everything that everyone heard today in the show notes over at startupsavant.com slash podcast. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for doing this podcast. Uh, It's a benefit to a lot of people. All right. That's going to be it for this week's episode of the Startup Savant Podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you want to join in the conversation around Chris or the book, you can find us in the comment section below the YouTube video for this episode. And if you've got a story to share about a product demo experience, that is what we really want to hear. If you liked what you heard today, remember to share this episode with your business buddies. Put it in your Slack or your Discord or wherever you like to hang out. That is the best way to support our team and help us grow the show. Catch us again next Wednesday morning with another excellent episode of the Startup Savant Podcast. And until then, go and build something beautiful. The Startup Savant Podcast is produced by Truick.